everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. I bet everyone in this room has a, a vivid memory of being disciplined as a child. Maybe for some of you, it's like your very first memory, you know, a spanking, a timeout, a wooden spoon, a scolding. And, and, or maybe you just remember the feeling, like the shame, the anger, the fear. Perhaps for some of you, it's like um, a very difficult, traumatic memory because what was presented to you as, as discipline for your own good was, in retrospect, something closer to abuse, uh, physical or emotional violence, and it's still very raw. Um, I have this very clear memory of pre-kindergarten of, of getting in trouble, don't remember for what for, and preparing to get a spanking. And that is the worst part, is just the preparing. The spanking didn't hurt. It was this buildup to it, you know. And my dad actually said, and I don't know if I'm old enough that this wasn't a cliche at the time. It was the very first time I'd ever heard it. He said, uh, son, this is going to hurt me. Oh, you've heard, you had my father as well? Okay. Um, when you're a kid, is there anything more galling than hearing that? Oh, hurt you more? All right, well, let's just do a little switcheroo then, old man. And then I became a parent, and I understood the necessity of discipline. And, and it really did hurt me more than it hurt my kids, because we spend so much time of our parenting, you know, trying to protect our kids, trying to protect them from harm and, and sadness and disappointment, trying to give them good gifts, um, wanting to make them happy. Maybe even if we're honest, uh, wanting to be liked by our kids. You know, when we, when Victoria and I were about to have kids, I'd already had this career as a youth counselor. I'd went to school and studied you know, the child development theorist, and I, I knew all about the natural and logical consequences, and I had my non-abusive restraint certificate, and I was going to, you know, lead the way at home and show Victoria what it meant to lay down the law and, and you know, not be such a pushover. And then we had three adorable girls who loved their daddy, and... Uh, and even when they were bad, they were so cute. And I often found myself having to let Victoria drop the velvet hammer, you know? <laughs> so look at, this is Gracie. And look closely, she's taken a bite out of every apple. <laughs> and little Rose is right there, knowing some, she's in trouble. In fact, I suspect Rosa actually ratted out her sister. Um, so, look, how do you stay mad at that adorableness? You don't. You don't is the answer. But as a matter of principle, more than raising happy kids, uh, kids who like us, 
the wise parent knows they're trying to raise good kids, mature kids, kids who will be ready to face uh, the world with qualities of honesty and self-reliance and, and courage and resilience and, and dependability and impulse control and respect. You know, parents uh, have to sacrifice what is easier, which is doing nothing, for what is harder, but which produces long-term good, you know, which means it means confronting misbehavior, addressing uh, character issues in your kid. And I will say that being a parent has been instrumental, instrumental in, in new levels of understanding the Heavenly Father's love for me. How many would agree that being a parent has been, yeah, just a life lesson in that? And I start to understand why a perfect, loving God might even discipline me. Why, why loving people uh, who, who want the best for me in this community even might hold me to account, might have tough conversations with me, not because it's easy, but because they love me. I've, I've come to understand that no one can really say with more authenticity than God this hurts me more than it hurts you, but I love you, and I want to see you develop into the kind of person who isn't controlled by their temper or their pride or their lusts. I, I've, I've designed you, Jonathan, to be so much more, and so you know, I'm going to work with you on this, uh, but it's going to hurt at times. A New Testament writer would come right out and say, the Lord disciplines those he loves. You know, I don't discipline other people's children. They aren't my responsibility. You could say that I'm the greatest threat to the children I love the most. I'm the only dad that comes to mind when they think, I hope my dad doesn't find out. I'm also the only dad that they run to when they're scared or hurt or in need. So, Today, the question is, how should a church respond, especially a young, hip, urban church like this first century church in Corinth, when the people in the church are so influenced by the culture that they're thinking like non-Christians, they're acting like non-Christians, and, and promoting the kind of things that non-Christians promote? And, and that's what Paul addresses beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't, that's okay. We'll put it up on the screens. Just out of curiosity, anybody read from 1 Corinthians this week? Good, good. I'm keeping mental track. And <laughs> hey, did you see the Knights are back from New Zealand? Yeah, good to see you guys. I'm trying to avoid getting to this verse 1 here. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. Buckle down. Buckle in. It's going to be a bumpy day. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Sexual immorality is a, like a junk drawer term. It encompasses all kinds of sexual immorality because people are sneaky. And they'll say, well, it didn't say specifically that I couldn't do that. Well, the list of depraved things that humans will come up with um, would fill the whole Bible and then some. But I assure you, the Bible is very much in favor of you getting married 
and loving your spouse and having amazing sex. Anything outside of that is called sexual immorality. It's quiet today. I would like you to... um, (laughs) I'd like you to send your emails and comments to chris at newmarkalliance.com. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Uh Uh-oh. That's bad. When the non-Christians are going, ugh, that's nasty. When the guy who frequents the strip club is going, ugh, you've probably crossed the line, okay? It says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. What? His stepmom? Now, if you believe that there is a line... And that line is, well, two consenting adults have the freedom to do whatever they want, and, you know, who are we to judge? Well, this fits that criteria. Two consenting adults, who are we to judge? That was the Corinthian church's response. But this is some, like, hillbilly trailer park Ozark nastiness going on here. I I don't know what the exact circumstances are. I do not want to know what they are. We don't know if his dad died and they ran off together. I don't know what's going on here. All I know is it's not right. If there's a woman that you call mom and you take that same woman to the prom, something is wrong. You've crossed the line, okay? And he says, you are, what's his word? Proud. You are proud. Hey, we're tolerant, we're diverse, you know, we're open-minded, we're, we're consenting adults, we believe in freedom. He says, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning? Some translations say, shouldn't you have been grieved? Shouldn't you have been ashamed on behalf of these two? And I, I wonder if this passage might even imply that, that many in the Corinthian church had their own sort of sexual sin because maybe they're looking at this guy saying, well, I don't want to judge them because if we start drawing theological and moral lines, it's going to come back to me because I got my own stuff. So I let him alone. He leaves me alone. And Paul says, shouldn't it have been heartbreaking that this kind of thing would happen by people who profess to be Christians? You know, I made this point last week don't get all mad at non-Christians with how they live, okay? They, they don't have the Spirit of God living in them. They don't know what they don't know. But people who profess to be Christians, where it seems like their, their conscience is, is so altogether broken that they, they've become hardened, that they, they reach the point where they not only sin egregiously, but they flaunt it publicly. They come to church together. They sit next to each other. They hold hands. They sing songs. They take communion. And the church isn't even bothered by it. The church lets them, you know, tell their small group that they believe God just wants them to be naked and happy, right? And he says, shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? Shouldn't you have said, like, this is unacceptable, See, that's the ugly side of freedom, isn't it? It's, it's why Paul says it's actually better to be a slave to Christ because the truth is you're a slave to your lust or you're a slave to your Lord. And slavery to lust leads to more sin, which ultimately leads to death. 
And so that so-called freedom is really no freedom at all. There's no freedom apart from Jesus Christ. Well, if you loved me, you'd accept me. Okay, but you call yourself a disciple. You call yourself a follower of Christ. And if I truly love you, then I would implore you towards change and towards obedience and holiness. And so what happens is when you embrace unchecked tolerance, unchecked freedom as, as the greatest virtue, you end up bragging about evil. You're, you're no longer horrified. And Paul moves on to his second point. He says, someone who says that they are a Christian yet lives this life of habitual, unrepentant sin, well, the church just can't sit by. Um, the church has got to be proactive in defending itself against error and against immorality. And, and in saying this, Paul, Paul hopes not to punish anyone, but to bring them to repentance. Um, you know, just like a good parent with a child, like the goal is not to destroy the child, but to correct them so, so they stop doing that which is harmful. And so Paul says in verse 3, for my part, even though I am not physically present, remember Paul is, is off somewhere else helping start another church, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul says, yeah, I haven't had coffee with this guy. I, I'm not in a small group. We haven't had a heart-to-heart. -heart. I'm not even there, but I know enough already to call it sin, to call it what it is. You know, there are times where we don't need a whole Mueller investigation to make a judgment call, right? Do you call yourself a Christ follower? Yes. Are you having sex outside of marriage? Yeah then you're in sin. Well, you haven't heard my story. I know the part of the story that matters, so knock it off. Paul goes on. So when you're assembled, when the church comes together, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that this spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. At this point, I'd like to welcome all the visitors to NAC. Um, you came on a great Sunday. This is, we call this the uh, hand them over to Satan Sunday. Yikes. You know what? And seriously, in, in, thinking, in thinking about this message this week, I was worried about our guests, our visitors, about our newcomers, and even, you know, new Christians I've kind of turned a corner on it in my mind, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I'm going to tell you why. First, you know, when, when we commit to teach through portions of the Bible, um, I have to teach what comes up, you know? We don't cherry pick, and I think that's a good sort of accountability. Uh, now, for those of you this morning who are seeking, you're trying to figure out if you believe this whole Jesus Thing or not. You know, I am so glad that you're here because you have no doubt seen horror stories of how so-called Christians and the so-called church have covered 
uh, for each other. How the, how the abuse scandals of the Catholic Church, how the, the Me Too moments of the evangelical church, which have been covered up. And I want to be clear, that is not, I repeat, not indicative of how God has called his people to act. Um, and, and I want you to know that God lays out guardrails and boundaries for that. God wants the church to actually be a witness to the community about his goodness, about how there can be a, a counterculture, a kingdom that is different. And so we won't be a church that sweeps our junk under the rug. So it, it's good for you to see that right in Scripture it says, Christians, you got to deal with your business. And, uh, and you got to take evil seriously. Yeah, call it out. Don't let it tarnish the, the reputation of Jesus and his bride in the community. And so this dude in Corinth, he says he's a Christian, refuses to live like a Christian, even pridefully flaunts his perversion in clear contradiction to the teachings of Scripture, upsetting to a holy and righteous God. This church, maybe of 50 or 60 people, where everybody knows everybody, all up in each other's business, right? And so what should you do? Well, he says, hand him over to Satan and kick him outside the church. And you say, well, that sounds cruel. The wording is harsh, to say the least. Is it possible that it might actually be the most loving thing to do? Because um, Christians have two options. Repentance or discipline. And if you repent, then there is love, there is support, there is grace, there is mercy. The church doesn't push you away, the, the church pulls you closer. Repentance. Oh, you don't want to be a porn addict? You don't want to cheat on your spouse? You, you want to change? Great. Welcome. We're going to walk with you. We're going to acknowledge that we're all sinners. We're going to uh, be there for you. And Paul says previously in chapter 4, we weren't able to get to it, but he says, shall I come with a whip or a hand of tender love? You know, the repentant get the hand of tender love, but, but this guy, he's unrepentant, and so he's going to get the proverbial whip. And so what is this harsh phrase, handing him over to Satan? It's this. You do not get the privilege to continue to be in the church and have a community, a family, a support um, uh, that will you know, encourage and nurture you. If you're going to live a life of habitual, unrepentant sin, you know, it kind of seems like you just want to run with Satan, so go run with Satan. But it's going to have to be outside of this church community. Now, the hope is, the prayer is that eventually he would come to repentance. Eventually he would say, I, I miss the church. I miss my friends. I miss the, the loving community. I miss the support, the fellowship of God and of others. And, and I want to return to my church family. And so I, I need to repent and come back. That's the prayer. It's not to destroy someone, but hopefully to destroy their desire for sin so that they they come back humbly, ready to walk with God. I, I have seen this work where people would respond with conviction and brokenness and repentance. And 
I've also seen it where people respond with an even more entrenched rebellion and justification and lies, spin. You know, one of the things that has really got my knickers in a twist lately is this, I would even call it a rash of evangelical leaders in the last couple of years getting a pass on this somehow, you know. Pastors, leaders do not get a pass on this. They ought to actually lead the way in terms of repentant reconciliation and discipline. The, the megachurch pastor caught in a Me Too moment who coincidentally just retires and never addresses it. Um, the bullying pastor who, when confronted by his board, you know, quits and then plants a church three states away. Uh, not submitting to a process of, of reconciliation, blowing up the church in the process. You know, the pastor confronted with his drinking problem who takes a sabbatical only to pop up on a speaking tour of other churches. Um, no accountability, no process, no acknowledgement. It just happened a few weeks ago, a, a, a big-name pastor denying and denying the accusations of bullying and intimidation and gambling and announces a sabbatical, no brokenness, no repentance, and starts work the next week preaching at a new church. Um, it's our own Protestant version of, of, of just quietly sending priests to other parishes. And God weeps over it. it it's a pride, the avoidance, the hypocrisy, the double standards. Pastors are not exempt from this. They are, in fact, the most accountable. Church, do not let me get away with that kind of sin that can ruin a church and, and besmirch the reputation of Jesus. You know, one of the reasons I make even just a little plug for membership is that, you know, you are willingly submitting yourself to sort of a corporate accountability of each other. It's, it's hard to call non-members to certain standards uh, if they haven't formally submitted themselves to those standards. And listen, I know for a fact some of you sitting here maybe witnessed in your upbringing a very legalistic, unkind, shame-based version of this where people were hauled up on stage in front of the church and made to debase themselves in, in some humiliating way. And, and this verse is used for justification of that that is not what I'm talking about either, you know? And I know there are people in leadership who have had to address really difficult things with people, sin issues that had a real impact and a, and a ripple effect. And you did everything with as much grace and as much wisdom and kindness as you knew how, and, and you wouldn't know how to do it any better even if you had a chance, and it still, it still ended up being people with angry and hurt feelings felt they were treated unfairly, and it can just feel like a no-win. But listen, not addressing it, sweeping it under the rug, it just can't be an option. We, we won't be that church. We can't be that kind of church. So someone claiming to be a Christian, living uh, in the church, sinning continuously, um, we're not talking about one day they sinned and they're heartbroken and they need help. I'm talking about a habitual, ongoing, 
unrepentant pattern. And eventually the leadership of the church has to be bold enough to say, okay, fine, you're, you're dangerous. You're a sexual predator. You're stirring up chaos. You're unrepentant. You're a troublemaker. You're no longer welcome here until you come to repentance. It is a, it's an act of last resort. And I'm happy to say I know people a year, two years, five years later who come and say, you know what? I, I was in sin and I really miss walking with other Christians and my conscience is bothering me. Will you forgive me? Absolutely. You know, just like the prodigal who, who came home just smelling like pigs but being greatly loved. Absolutely. We love you. Come in. We want to help. We want to serve. Um, but if your heart is hard, and you're proud, and you're arrogant, and, and you're not only participating in sin, but you're encouraging others to do likewise, man, we, we can't walk with you at that point. That's a road you gotta walk alone. And Paul makes this point. Churches become increasingly evil when they turn a blind eye to sin. Your boasting, he says, is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, a little sin, leavens or, or works through the whole batch of dough. Sin can sp spread through the whole church. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are, that you would be a holy, healthy church without yeast, without sin, as you really are, positionally made holy in Christ. And he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the fast festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, in the old days of the Passover among God's people in the Old Testament, they would totally clean their house and they'd get rid of all the filth and, and dirt and, and just clean it um, to represent a holy and pure worship to God. And all of this is symbolizing the coming of Jesus Christ, who became a man, the Bible says, was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So, so don't think that Jesus didn't experience even sexual temptation. We're talking about a man in his early 30s, unmarried, single. Like if he was tempted in every way that we are, he was tempted in every way that we are. We just got to, Take that at face value. And yet he never sinned. So we see in the Lord Jesus there is a big difference between temptation and sin. Being tempted is not sin, okay? Being tempted is an opportunity to sin or to walk with God in holiness and in repentance. So Paul uses this concept of a little bit of yeast working through the batch of dough. Sin is like yeast, the batch of dough is like the church. Could you imagine um, someone who is respected in the church and it became widely known that they were committing adultery and the church was like, well, you know, Poe Buddy's nerfic, right? Um, and you meet up with the guy and he says, well, you know, my wife's not, taking care of my needs, and I've got a few girlfriends on the side, and it works for our family. My wife's okay with it. No harm, no foul. And next thing you know, there's some new young Christians in the church, and they're listening to this nonsense. 
and they start doing the same thing, and then their buddies start listening to this ridiculousness, and they start doing the same thing. Look, if sin is tolerated, sin doesn't remain static. It, it grows. It spreads like a virus. And so for each of us, I think we need to acknowledge that, that we have the potential to hurt our church if we continue in unrepentant sin and encourage others to do likewise. And so Paul's last point is that Christians, therefore, must be judges like Jesus. No one's going to like this point. Uh, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, immoral people not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, the non-Christians. Look, Christians are notorious for expecting more from non-Christians than Christians, you know? Let's picket the strip club, but let's cover up the pastor's verbal abuse. Paul says, you got it backwards. Non-Christians, patient love. Hypocritical, unrepentant Christians, swift discipline. And sometimes we extend all the mercy and the grace to the unrepentant Christians and just drop the hammer on the non-Christians. Absolutely wrong. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we love you. You are so welcome here. I'm not God. We don't, we don't judge who goes to heaven. We're not even trying to change you. We couldn't change you if we tried. God can, though, if you let him, if you want him to. But if you're here and you're a Christian and you live a life of unrepentant, habitual sin and you don't even want to change and you're proud of yourself, justifying it, and I gotta say, you're in great, great self-deception. And Paul says the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, non-Christian sin, expect that, okay? Don't be disappointed and angry because in that case, you would have to leave this world You'd have to have Scotty beam me up off the planet because we're surrounded with immoral people and some people just live that way. We'll just, you know, there's some Christians who are like, we gotta hunker down, we gotta build the wall and circle the wagons and we don't even talk to those immoral people. Um, those are actually the people that Jesus spent most of his time with. And it's the religious hypocrites that criticized him for it. But Paul says, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Anyone who says, I'm a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler, don't even eat with such people. Look, if they say they're a Christian and they won't repent of their sin, um, they won't deal with their sin you got to cut them off. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's an issue of jurisdiction, okay? Paul says, outside the church, we don't have jurisdiction, only in the church. Are you not to judge those inside? Rhetorical question. Yeah, you have to. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Here's what he's saying. Christians should judge one another within the church and those that are not in the church, that is those who are not professing Christians, that's God's jurisdiction, okay? We don't know their hearts. We don't know their life. God does. And so if, if, you're, not a, if you're a non-Christian, I gotta say, you will live your life um, 
At one time, you will stand before Jesus and you will be judged. That's how it's gonna go. But in the meantime, it's, it's not for us to pass judgment on you. We can tell you based on the teachings of, of this amazing book called the Bible, on the teachings of Jesus, what is sinful, what is not sinful, what is wise, what is unwise. But as far as your soul goes, we don't make that decision, God does. But for those in the church, we have to judge. Some of you are gonna struggle with this, I know, and I do, because you know, you're thinking, didn't Jesus say, do not judge? Which is, by the way, <laughs> one of two verses that every 19-year-old marginal Christian has committed to memory. <laughs> do not judge. And the other one is, um, every seed-bearing plant the Lord gave is good, which apparently means, I can smoke weed, man, it's in the Bible. That's all they got. Those are, that's their whole systematic theology right there. I can get high and don't judge me for it. Um, let me give you a little context before we wrap up. Matthew 7 is the context in which Jesus says don't judge. What he's talking about is hypocritically. He's saying, look, if you have a two-by-four sticking out of your eye and you go to this buddy and you're like, hey, you got a little speck of dust in your eye, um, you better deal with that. Because your buddy would rightly say, yeah, and you have a two-by-four sticking out of your head, and it's a little more obvious and a little more urgent. Well, Jesus says, get the two-by-four out of your eye, and then you go to your brother and say, you know, that speck of dust is going to cause problems. I should know, because I had this two-by-four sticking out of my head. So Jesus is not talking about judging so much as judging as a, as a hypocrite, not coming up and saying, uh, you know, when me and my wife and our girlfriend were together this week, we were uh, talking about how your marriage needs work. That's not, uh, Paul says, you know, you probably should deal with your stuff before you deal with someone else's stuff, right? Don't judge hypocritically before you've dealt with your own sin. So as we wrap up, here's, here's the issue. You and I, we're sinners, we're broken. Have you repented of your sins? Do you want to change? Do you want to get better? If so, you don't need to have all your stuff together. You need to have a willing heart. That's all. So if you want to get better, God wants to help. Knack wants to help you. Um, and if you don't want to get better and you claim to be a Christian, you're actually on very scary ground. So you don't need to come in having it all together. I assure you, I don't have it all together. But God and this community want to help by God's grace for me to change, for you to change. Jesus loves me so much. Jesus loves you so much. In fact, he, he, loves, he loves you enough not to let you just remain the same. Um, we exist to help you take spiritual steps of change and transformation. We want to help. God wants to help. And so the question is, do you want to change? And maybe you say, why does, why does this even matter? Because the church is to be a counterculture, a holy people that does life differently, does money and marriage and family different. You know, you and I 
can't allow the culture to convert us. Doesn't mean we hate the world, far from it. We love the world, but we, we stand against the spirit of the world for the sake of the world. So you want to be countercultural? Um, you think getting naked and getting drunk and getting high is countercultural? That's not alternative, that's the majority. You know, you want to be counterculture, you want to be a total rebel. Be a virgin till you get married. Pay your taxes. Read the Bible, you freak. <laughs> You'll just be a total rebel. Live repentantly. Call sin, sin. And at NAC, we'll be the first to call our sin, sin. And we will be accountable, and we will deal with it, and we will have humble hearts, and we'll be willing to change for the sake of the reputation of Jesus for the sake of the health and the effectiveness of this church, for the sake of the city to which we have been placed in and called to. I'm gonna pray, and this is always an opportunity for you to repent, trust in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian. Ask him to forgive you, and he, he will. For those of you who are Christians and you have sin that's unrepentant and it's habitual and you've got all kinds of excuses, um, come to repentance. And, and if afterward you wanna pray with someone, I'll make sure that there's people available. For those of you who have been judgmental of everyone outside of the church, but sort of lackadaisical about you know, your own Christian friends, you allow them to continually be in unrepentant sin. You know, maybe you need to repent of your cowardice, maybe even of self-righteousness. So why don't we stand together? We'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you even for this opportunity to, to study your word. It's a hard word. It's a hard word. But I know that... Um, Hard words produce soft people. And so, God, we want to be a soft-hearted people. I just acknowledge, God, that I am a sinner, that I struggle with the same thing that everybody else does. God, I, I have a life of impurity at times. I, I have a past of impurity. And I thank you that by grace you've enabled me to change. I pray that for all my friends that are gathered here today, that they would experience that grace to change. And God, I pray that you would be um, singularly devoted to your glory, that, that we would repent of sin and trust in you, and that we'd be a holy people, pleasing to you, a counterculture, um, not to stand against the world in condemnation, but to stand against the kingdom of the world, uh, for the salvation of the world. We pray this in the name, the powerful and strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you need somebody to pray with, know that we have uh, gifted people who would like to do that with you. Um, today was PG. Um, <laughs> next week is PG-13. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, Pastors sometimes joke about if you want to boost attendance, 
I need to talk about either sex or the end times. And uh, I think maybe if we talk about will there be sex in the end times, we'll just boom, you know. But I'm not super looking forward to it, but it's going to be good. PG-13 next week. You are a loved people. Thank you for coming to church. But my challenge to you now is to go be the church. God bless you.